Welcome to the Tree of Life podcast. I'm your host, Joel Ledford, and I'm here with Cassie Ettinger. Welcome, Hello. Cassie. Thank you. So uh, today, I uh, thought I'd bring Cassie in to talk about her research and maybe uh, ask you about how you ended up getting here at UC Davis and becoming interested in biology in general. So maybe you can start off by telling us a little bit about your background, how you ended up here, where you got your undergrad, how you became interested in research. Yeah, so I did my undergraduate degree at UC Berkeley. And when I got there, I thought I was going to be a math major. And I was really excited. And then I decided that I didn't actually enjoy math as much as I thought. And so I started taking some of the basic intro biology classes. In my high school, I had taken some AP biology as well as AP environmental science. And so kind of in the background of my mind was something I was thinking about. And so I was there at UC Berkeley starting to pursue biology. And I thought, okay, I know I don't want to be a doctor. Blood freaks me out. <laughs> thinking about what's inside us is a little too ugh, for me. Um, and so... I looked around to see if I could have a research experience. And they have a wonderful program where undergraduates can kind of apply to different projects that are available. So I applied to a couple projects and I got into a lab at Berkeley to do some research on legume rhizobia symbiosis with Ellen, Dr. Ellen Sims. Um, and it was my first research experience and I got to work closely with a graduate student and then I went on to kind of have more of an independent project and worked really closely with their lab manager doing greenhouse experiments and going out to Bodega Bay, which is where I first got my oh. field research experience, which is then I used a little bit as well for my graduate um, research. But that experience of kind of just getting uh, to interact with the science and like actually, um, especially the symbiosis aspect, seeing how two organisms interact a plant and a microbe was really exciting to me. And then I got to continue a little bit of that when I studied abroad through um, the university study abroad program in the UK. And I worked on Drosophila, hmm. so on fruit flies, looking at fruit flies that had um, the genes related to human Parkinson's disease. And they were looking at how dopamine actually plays a role in vision and also in Parkinson's, potentially in Parkinson's disease as well. And so that was very different. Right, yeah, it's different. Um, it was not something I was interested in. It's still not really something I'm interested in <laughs> scientifically, but it was a great experience because I got to do a full project from start to finish while I was there and like write it up and present on it. Um, so it was very different than what I'd experienced at Berkeley. And then when I went back, I did an independent honors thesis um, on legume rhizobia symbiosis. And so that was kind of what got me thinking about doing research in the future as a graduate student and specifically plant microbe research. Wow, that's great. So, I mean, and I think that's pretty common, uh, you know, feature in doing any kind of science. You start off on a path and you try it out and maybe it doesn't work for you and you have to go back and, you know, mm -hmm. pursue what you are really passionate about. So that's, that's a great story. Um, so that brings us to seagrass. Yeah. Right. And, um, in reading your paper last night, I, I, I learned a whole, whole bunch of really interesting things about seagrass. And I, I thought first, um, maybe you could uh, tell us what the big questions are in your research. Um, maybe explain, you know, what was the impetus for 
looking at seagrass, because you're not just looking at the seagrass themselves, you're looking at their fungal symbionts. Mm-hmm. And um, so what is the what are the big questions in, in, in researching seagrass? What are you interested in? Right, so seagrass is really interesting. It is kind of similar in its ecosystem services to trees in a rainforest, right? So it's a habitat, it's a hatchery, it's also really kind of um, part of this blue carbon movement for you know, how are we gonna be dealing with carbon as we move into the future? It's great for carbon sequestration because there's lots of um, degrading material in these seagrass beds, but it's also not a phylogenetic um, group. It's a morphological group. So it's all um, kind of three distantly or semi-distantly related lineages that have readapted to the marine ecosystem. They all have very similar morphological features. They look like grass, right? Mm. Sea grass. Um, so it provides this really interesting opportunity to look at the coevolution of plants and their associated fungi, or even just associated microbes more generally, because now we can look at these three separate lineages. We can see how, um, what community members do they have, and then do we see convergence across the three groups? Do we see the same fungi with the same functions? Do we see different fungi with the same functions, or do we see different fungi in different functions? Um, and it kind of can inform on both adaptations to the marine ecosystem on either the side of the seagrass or on the side of the microbial symbionts of the fungi. So are they convergently evolving themselves? And then it can also inform on how we understand plant microbe symbiosis. So are there roles that are happening here that we can take away? Right. So when I when I think of fungal symbionts and plants, I always think of land plants. I always think of you know, things like uh, glomeromycota, the mm-hmm. arbuscular mycorrhizae, but reading your paper, I learned that that's not common in, in seagrass. They don't frequently have yeah. mycorrhizae. And so um, so before we maybe get into that, could you uh, take a, just a moment and define for us what is a symbiosis? What's a microbiome or mycobiome in this yeah. case? Um, So symbiosis is hard. People define it differently. Um, I think of it as any interaction between two organisms. You can have mutualistic interactions where both partners are benefiting. You can have parasitic interactions where one partner is benefiting at the expense of the other. And then you can have commensal interactions where one partner benefits, but the other partner is kind of like, whatever, it's okay. Um, so I consider all of those symbioses. Some people only consider it a beneficial interaction, but for our purposes, we'll say it's any interaction that can occur. And then kind of a microbiome would be kind of all of the microorganisms associated with a host. In our case, the host would be seagrass. And so a mycobiome, myco for fungi, is just all of the fungal community members that are associating with seagrass. Right. So, so would it be fair to say that uh, the mycorrhizae that are associated with land plants are part of their mycobiome? Oh, for sure. Yeah, it's definitely the case. And that's a really important association as plants moved on to land because of the mycorrhizae specifically have um, helped a lot with acquiring nutrients that you can't acquire as easily as you could in the marine ecosystem, which may be one reason why we don't see those associations in the marine ecosystem with seagrasses moving back is maybe they didn't need the mycorrhizal fungi to attain these nutrients. But there are other concerns when you enter the marine environment, like high salinity, and now you do have, seagrasses do have a traditional root system. They have vascular tissue. 
So they do have to obtain some of their nutrients through their roots. Um, so they do have to make some of these adaptations where maybe you could see a new novel fungi coming in um, to form some sort of new association to provide either similar or different functions like the mycorrhizae might have been providing. All right. So, so then would it be fair to say that um, some of the fungi associated with seagrass do some of the same functions as mycorrhizae or no? I think that that's a hypothesis that I would like to test further. Yeah, I do think that maybe bush sing, especially in areas like the tropics, where there's a lot of um, actual nutrient limitation because they're so biodiverse that so many nutrients are being used, I could see mycorrhizae being present there. In temperate areas, um, I think that it's less likely. We tend to see kind of just less um, fungal community, the diversity is much lower in temperate areas than in uh, tropical areas. I mean, similar to animal biodiversity. Um, so I do think that potentially we're seeing that we could see that. Right. And, so, and, and then in reading your paper, some of those fungi are really just not, not known. Yeah. Well, I mean, nobody's looked at marine fungi. People think of mushrooms when they think of fungi or they think of fungi they see right. at the grocery store or on their breads, molding. Um, they're not thinking about what's in the marine ecosystem. And that's been true for traditional mycologists as well. No one, and I wouldn't say no one, I guess there were a couple scientists who looked into it, but it's not been a growing movement by right. far. Right, okay. So then uh, one other thing that was really interesting to me is that when I think of something like a human microbiome, I know that the microbiome uh, species diversity is pretty different depending on the part of the body you're looking mm -hmm. at. But the same's true of plants. Yeah. So the roots and the, the leaves and the stems all can kind of have different, um, you know, fungal or microbial components. Yeah, they do. Um, and part of that could be having to do with the localization of certain things that they need. So you might have things involved more with nutrient uptake in the roots. And then in our case, in the leaves, we saw a lot of things that seemed related to Chytridiomycota, which are the only fungi that has swimming zoospores. Right, so they may want to be more in the marine ecosystem, right, which is where mm -hmm. the leaves are, instead of being stuck in the sediment, because most fungi are going to grow hyphally um, right. and not going to be moving around. So then um, I guess the, you know, one of the last things I wanted to ask you about is how do you go about studying these symbionts? I mean, it, it's, uh, you can't really culture them in a lab uh, effectively, so what are the approaches that you use to study such such things? Yeah, so it's a little complicated. Um, when you ta start talking about eukaryotes, microbial eukaryotes specifically, and then the fungi, a lot of the work we know that's actually really kind of um, increased our knowledge of their evolution, especially like genomically, has actually been from culture-based studies. Okay. So they're still a little bit behind compared to the general like bacterial community, which is using much more of these culture independent approaches, doing like high throughput sequencing of metagenome, so all of the DNA in an environment, and then kind of pulling out specific organisms. So you can kind of start, we're starting to move in that direction for the eukaryotes, but it's a little more complicated because of their ploidy, right? They're not haploid right. like bacteria, they don't have circular genomes, they can have chromosomes, so it's a little bit more complicated. So. We are using lots of those genomic techniques, but we actually are relying a little bit more on the culture-based collection okay. stuff still. Um, but a lot of it right now is kind of 
nobody really knows what the diversity of marine fungi is right now. So even before we get to what roles might they be having, um, we need to figure out who they are. <laughs> and so a lot of that is kind of just serving with short read technology to get just some conserved marker genes so we can say, okay, who's here? And then using that information to do targeted culture-based studies where we're like, okay, so we have a bunch of mycota, these chytrids. So people have cultured chytrids before, um, especially with this focus on the BD that infects right. the frogs and kills them, or the amphibians generally. So there are some techniques we can use to try and kind of bait those organisms out. But then again, it's just kind of increasing um, different methods that we could be using, adapting them from the bacterial world and kind of incorporating that more into this eukaryotic metagenomic sequencing right. world. Right. It's kind of the like um, wild west. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I, I mean, I, I I didn't really think that, you know, a lot of those culture independent studies are a little bit harder in eukaryotes, but yeah. that, that makes a lot of sense. So uh, I guess the last question is what what's next? What, what What's on the horizon for seagrass and fungi research? What are you thinking about now? Yeah. So we've done a lot of the kind of foundational work now looking at who's there. And so getting more into what are they doing? So this is going to involve um, several different kinds of studies. Some of them are going to be experimental manipulations, right? If we grow the seagrass and then we add a specific fungal symbiont or a specific bacterial symbiont, can we see differences in the seagrass's health? And then also starting to look at differing health statuses. So most of the studies that have been done have been looking at healthy seagrass, hmm. right? We wanted to kind of set up like who's there, you know, just generally. So now we need to challenge the seagrass. There's a pathogen, uh, Labyrinthella. It's a heterocont. Okay. So it's not a fungi. It's not a bacteria. It's not an archaea. And, you know, what happens when we add some of these other members of the community, when we also add this heterocont, the Labyrinthella, do we see differences in the seagrass's outcome? And so kind of getting more into this functional work. And some of that for the fungi is a little bit behind because we still have to figure out... Um, get better genomes for these organisms, start to look at transcriptomes from the culture-based studies oh, to okay. kind of get that reference that isn't there for the fungi that kind of already exists for the bacteria. Um, but just generally moving in this kind of more experimental way towards function. We could also do imaging. Imaging is always really exciting to confirm localization of some of these members and then start to look and see, do we have fungi interacting with bacteria? even in the seagrass microbiome. There's also a lot of diatoms associated with seagrass, especially on the outside of their uh, leaves. So starting to look at some of these other microbial eukaryotes and their interactions actually within the seagrass, larger kind of microbiome. And viruses, I'm sure, also are playing important roles. Wow, amazing. So it's a lot more complicated. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it depends on the scale that you're looking at things. We can look at them at the gene scale, the organism scale, the community, the population. It just kind of gets crazy. Yeah, great. Well, that sounds really exciting. Uh, well, we appreciate you coming on today and uh, wish you the best of luck with your future research and hope to see you around soon. Yeah, All right, thank, thank you. Thank you.